You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. From the outside, Jaspreet Kaur is successful and confident, a pro at public speaking who performs her poetry to large crowds of people. But that's not always been the case. Her teenage years were ravaged by mental health issues like anxiety and depression, which at points even held her back from getting out of bed in the morning. Jaspreet talks to Susie. My guest today here on Women Making Waves is Jaspreet Kaur, award-winning spoken word artist, poet and writer, and a history teacher, also a TEDx speaker, did a Gender Studies MA at University College London, and quite interestingly, on your website you say you're an unapologetic brown feminist. Some wonderful titles here, which are great to be able to talk to you about these. I get the impression, amongst many, many other things, like mental health and everything else, that poetry is your oxygen. Yeah, it's literally become a way of life for me now. It's a part of who I am in so many ways. But yeah, poetry started for me when I was about 13. And at that point, I didn't even know it was poetry that I was writing. It was simply something I was putting into a journal. And at that time, at the age of 13, it was a release for a lot of the kind of negative emotions I was feeling as a teenager. And what I later understood was early, early signs of anxiety, early signs of having anxiety attacks and early signs of depression. But obviously, at the age of 13, you have no idea what any of that means or what any of that looks like. Um, But for me then, at a point in my life where I couldn't speak to anybody about those emotions, couldn't speak to my family, couldn't speak to friends, and didn't know what services were available, there just wasn't much of a dialogue back then about mental health. So my outlet right then was to let it all out in this journal. Little did I know I was writing them in poetic form. Um, and that was it. It started from then. See the transition through those years of what other themes I started writing about to do with race and identity, um, culture, immigration. But first and foremost, I, I call it this mental health therapy for me. And essentially it still is, and I still use it as that tool. A diary is something that you keep close to your heart, Mm, mm. but with poetry, it's almost you want to release it and tell the whole world about it. So at what stage did it become, as well as a therapy, that you were able to open up to other people? Yeah, and start sharing it with the Mm. world. So that actually wasn't too long ago. It was only about four or five years ago that I decided to pluck up the courage and go to this open mic night. So I'm originally from East London, born and bred, and heard about this kind of poetry arts night happening in West London. And I thought, you know what, I'll go there, I'll share this particular poem there. I don't know anyone there. If it goes terribly wrong, I'll run back home, never do it again. (laughs) It was a poem about, it it was a really hard topic actually, it was about female infanticide in Punjab, which was what I'd written my master's thesis on. It was a really heavy topic about sun preference in the South Asian community, why do we prefer sons over daughters and this ongoing issue not only in India but also happening here in the UK. So I went there and I performed it and someone was filming it in the audience and the next morning it went viral and I woke up with emails and messages from people all around the world, the UK, America, Canada, India 
Um, and not only that, but on the night, the audience were so captivated by it, had these amazing conversations with people afterwards and realized, wow, poetry has this power. So what drives you now? I know that you have a lot of projects or you've yeah. done a lot of projects, <laughs> but I just want to know what drives you. I, I usually talk about it kind of from two lenses because by day I am and only recently took a break from being a teacher. Um, so I'm a history and sociology teacher. And then the other side of me is this, this poet, this writer. And often I say, well, they both have the same mission. And, and the mission essentially is to make positive social change on people's lives, especially young people, giving them a sense of purpose, a sense of identity, um, to inspire and I feel like that happens in the classroom as, as a teacher and that happens on stage as a poet so if if it's having that mission and if it helps one person in that room then that's what I'm doing this for uh, and it's never about necessarily becoming super famous or becoming New York's time bestseller even though that would be wonderful but it's it's never been it'll happen it, 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 <laughs> I, I hope it will happen I think so yes I feel like and this is, I guess, where my faith plays a big part of this. Um, I come from the Sikh faith, and there, there is one of the key principles of the Sikh religion is this idea of seva, which means selfless service, and that each of us are here and we have been put here to help others in one way, shape, or form. And I feel that both as a teacher working with young people and the poetry is my way of helping people. The idea of tapping into all these different, not genres, but different themes. Mm -hmm. So I know that you are very interested in women in particular and mm -hmm. forgotten women's history. Yeah. You are also very interested in re, what's the word, retelling the story of colonialism mm -hmm. and empire. How do you plan that you will make sure that you cover everything in a, in a way because there were so many different things here, so many different threads. Yeah, and, and I was conscious of that, that I wasn't kind of covering too, too many different things, that it was unclear what my message was and didn't have my finger in too many different pies. So I wanted to make sure that all of these essentially come down to this idea of identity, about who we are. When we get past the surface level of what we see, I feel they feed, feed into three certain topics. There's the gender and issues to do with gender inequality. There is the kind of history and culture side of the themes. And then finally, there's the mental health and more emotional side of what I write. And I feel all three of them encompass this idea of looking at identity just from different lenses. Um, so yeah, I feel I've try to stay along those three threads and often I get asked oh why don't you write about climate change or why don't you write about something completely off those certain themes and it's not that I'm not passionate about them and not that I don't care about them but I feel that other people have the expertise to talk about those things so it makes sense that they do I'd rather focus on the things that I know both from an academic lens but also from my lived experience but I always want to make sure that everything that I say, whether it's through poetry or whether it's online, is either through lived experience or from actual research um, and it's credible. 
to say those things, mm. um, especially when I've got such a young audience, um, and especially when young South Asian girls are looking up to me as a role model. I feel like I have that sense of responsibility to make sure I'm doing this properly. Let's talk about your family here. Mm-hmm. Do you, has it been a, a good experience, them hearing about your poetry? I'm sure it has. It's been an interesting journey with my family because I remember when I first started sharing the poetry publicly um, on stage, my family were kind of, they were just bemused by it. They were kind of like, what is this? Like, what would you <laughs> This be? was your diary. This is yeah, your journal, wasn't is, it? Yeah. This is, um, especially when they've seen me going through a very kind of step-by-step process of doing my degree, doing my master's, doing my teacher training, becoming a teacher. And then all of a sudden I'm now getting on stages and doing this poetry, which is quite out of the norm for South Asian girls in general. And at first they were so, they were quite confused by it. And then I was like, look, come to some of the shows, read some of these poems and, and you can see what I'm doing. They came to a few shows and they were starting to get it and they were starting to see, okay, Jasper's always been passionate about these things. This is her way of expressing it. But it's the typical mum thing of, <laughs> it's only when someone else says, oh wow, your daughter's doing this, that my mum actually started to feel a bit more like, actually started to see more of the impact it was making. So when other women were coming up to my mum and saying, wow, your daughter's really changed my life, or your daughter's had such a huge impact on me in this way, was when they first started to actually see the the outcome of what this poetry was. Um, but I think the biggest moment, the transition moment, was uh, when I was asked to perform at the Commonwealth Service. And I was actually on my honeymoon at the time when I got the email. So my husband and I were away. We, were in, we, we went on a 12-month honeymoon, which is a complete different story. But we decided to go backpacking for a year after we got married. So we weren't planning to come back to the UK for 12 months and I was in Cambodia and thought let's just do a quick check of our emails, had a bit of Wi-Fi and I saw this email from the the Royal Commonwealth Society asking whether I'd like to perform for Her Majesty the Queen and the the usual reaction of is this a joke or is someone playing a mean (laughs) trick on me because this can't be real. And then I researched it, Googled it, and obviously there is a Commonwealth service held every year at Westminster Abbey, and they do have a poet who performs every year. And this year they wanted me to perform. And uh, obviously you can't say no to the Queen, had to go back, had to say yes. And we flew back for two weeks um, and surprised my family that we were coming back. Um, So my mum was already surprised that we'd come home. She wasn't (laughs) expecting to see us for another six months. And then I told her, okay, mum, you're going to have to get an outfit ready because we're going to go meet the Queen. And they were just so, my mum and dad were so, so proud. And they got to sit right in front of the royal family. So on one side, you've got Her Majesty the Queen, you've got Kate, you've got William, you've got Meghan, you've got Harry, all sitting on one side. And opposite that is my mum, dad and my husband. And my mum was just bawling, like she's just sitting there crying her eyes out. So I'm trying to perform and all I can see is her like with smudge makeup crying. But, but in that moment, I realised for my parents, obviously they migrated here to the UK. My granddad migrated here in the early 60s um, and my mum around the age of 18 migrated here in the late 70s. And for my family, setting a good foundation for us us kids and making sure we were educated well and my siblings and I being the first one to go to university were were the main achievements they really wanted us to to thrive for 
this was completely out of their imagination. This was standing in front of the Queen and the royal family and performing in front of thousands of people and world leaders was something they'd never imagined for their kids. So that, that moment was obviously when they were so proud. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they've supported me ever since and they come to all my shows. My mum reads every poem on Facebook and she's the first one to comment. And it's, yeah, they're, they're my biggest fan. Jaspreet, tell me about some of your other projects that you've been doing because one I'm particularly interested in is the decolonization. It's rewriting the empire story. Mm -hmm. So how have you done that? Through poetry again? Yeah, so one way is through poetry and that's definitely by using poetry as a way to tell those untold stories. So that's something I've been doing as a teacher in the classroom and within the education system, having these conversations about decolonizing the curriculum and especially the history curriculum as a history teacher was something that I'm, I've been really passionate about, about the fact that I've had to teach this curriculum over the last couple of years that is mainly Eurocentric, white male dominated, and doesn't tell the stories of women. Mm. It doesn't tell the stories of people of colour. Mm. And it's totally kind of ignored those narratives completely. And specifically within that, when I was teaching the British Empire, it's still being taught in a way that it's, it's, it's the story of Britain. It's glamorised. It's not focusing on any of the atrocities, the, the truth of what colonisation actually looks like, how it's impacted those countries and those communities till this day. There's none of that image in there. So it was up to, up to me to tackle that within the classroom and then within the education system. And then finally, more recently, is decolonizing spaces like museums, um, spaces where all of these topics have been taught and portrayed in a certain way for a very long time. Um, but working with kind of heritage projects and museums about kind of telling a truer narrative of, of, of British history. Um, so I recently worked with Kensington Palace um, on their Victoria exhibition, which is currently on display. Um, and what we did was a community project where we brought in women from the local community, um, specifically kind of South Asian women or women from the Commonwealth countries, uh, to come in and to look at the exhibition pieces before they went on display. Um, and some of them were Victoria's diaries, her dresses, but also stuff associated to India and, and her time as, as the Empress of India. And um, I ran poetry workshops with those women whilst they looked at these objects. Um, and the poetry that came out of that um, has now come, gone on display with those exhibition pieces. Um, and yeah, so you'll see these objects, but then you'll see the, the interpretation that that particular woman has had about that, that object. They're currently on display now in Kensington Palace. As a teacher, mm. that must be the most frustrating mm. thing when you're teaching a very white history, yeah. when we know there's been more to that. Yeah. So how did, did you have barriers? Did you have, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the barriers in reality and what that looks like on the ground is that you're given a specification to teach and you're given that from the Department of Education and they say, okay, these are the topics you need to cover. You need to do it in this certain time period. So six weeks of a term and you need to cover that. And then it's up to the teacher as an individual whether they bring in other stories or bring in other narratives. And teachers already have 
a huge workload as it is, so That's it's more enough. likely that they're going to stick to the framework that they've been given and not really question it. And that's going from kind of primary school level all the way up until GCSE and A level. And at that point, teaching those particular topics, you've also got the thought that I need to get them to pass their exams, we need to get them to finish this topic by this point in the year. And there's all those time pressures of just making sure that they're ready for exams. So within all of that, how is a teacher meant to fit in these other narratives unless it's already been provided to them? And it also is this idea of if the teacher themselves has never learned about colonisation or has never learned about the diversity of history in a truer sense, then how are they meant to teach it? And that, that goes further back. So yeah, it is, there's, there's quite a few barriers there. And unfortunately, I can't see it immediately changing in the next couple of years. Mm. And what about films? Because I'm, mm. I heard you mention very recently about World War One mm-hmm. and two films and how yeah. there's been such a lack of colour in mm. there because we have Asian soldiers yeah. in both wars. Yeah. Why have we not been able to expose that? Yeah. Why has that been... I'm sure you ask that question every day, and <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry that I've asked you that, but I, yeah. what, how have you tackled that sort of part of mm. your, of your yeah, journey? Because we need to see these stories, not only in history books, but also in the mainstream, and that's how we will filter in from kind of all angles about what, what history should really look like. Um, but the, yeah, this came up recently from the recent 1917 film, that it did portray an actor in there who's meant to be a Sikh Indian soldier. And if anyone has looked into the First and Second World War, you will know that the, the British Army was made up of, of, of countries of the Commonwealth and countries that were colonised by Britain. And it was made up of thousands of Indian soldiers. So it would be realistic to see some of them in, in those certain scenarios. But for a lot of people watching 1917, they were shocked by it um, and said, why is... They, it was the argument that people felt that it was just put in there for the sake of diversity rather than understanding that, no, that's the actual history, that is the truth. Um, but it comes down to the fact that no one's been taught that. Mm. And why is it that no one's been taught that? And it's because we've wanted to show British history and winning these two great wars from a lens of just Britain. Yeah. And Britain being the saviour in all of these situations. And that's why we haven't seen the truth. And that's why we haven't seen the diversity that actually was within these situations. Now, you were telling me earlier that mm-hmm. you have just won this amazing award, yes. which is at the Birkbeck University, Writers in Residence as a Research Fellow. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that, because <laughs> you're loving classy. it, because you've got three days in an office. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll have, my, have a space to write um, in, on Gower Street, so in, in central London, right near all the libraries um, and all the universities in London. Um, but yeah, it was it was a, a writer-in-residency post uh, with the politics department at Birkbeck University and uh, I sent the application off and it was for an idea of a, of a book that I've been working on for a while and yeah, it was, was, was accepted and that means from 2020 to 2021 I'll be within the politics department at the university, I'll have a mentor I'll have a space to write, um, but I'll also be doing a bit of lecturing and running workshops and seminars whilst I'm doing my research. So 
anything that I'm finding out whilst I write the book, I can also provide lectures on it and kind of get feedback as I'm going along, uh, which will be a really, really exciting process. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> so the future at the moment is you are writing a book amongst all the other hats that you have on your head. <laughs> the book is quite important to you. Are yeah. we allowed to know what it's about or is that just... Absolutely. And um, the book is, I guess it sums up everything we've spoken about today. It's a book, a narrative non-fiction about the lives of South Asian millennial women. So women who have been born here in the UK, like myself, but balancing these multi-intersectional identities, balancing growing up in a white Western world, but also the culture of our homeland, and understanding where do we fit in within all of that, and, and looking at who is a brown woman. Um, and we, you mentioned earlier on right at the start that I call myself an unapologetic brown feminist um, and actually exploring what brown feminism looks like. So what does being a South Asian woman actually look like here in the UK in 2020? Um, and I feel it's a voice and a story that hasn't been told. We don't see this in the mainstream, even though South Asian women are the, academically the second smartest in the country. We don't see that reflected in the mainstream. You don't see it in media, in, in literature, in politics, in, in the workplace. Our voice is often not heard. So I felt like this book needed to be written for Asian women, but also for Hopefully. others as well. For to everyone. know, yeah, to know our story and how we can all do better as a society for one another. Mm. Mm. Do you think we need to also encourage the older generation mm. who are sort of not in charge but still have the children that... Yeah. Do you think there's something there that we need to do as well, yeah, including yeah, that, me? Yeah, <laughs> and that, that all kind of age demographics, whether that's young people, that whether that's parents or whether that's kind of grandparents, having those conversations with one another. And it may be tricky conversations sometimes. It may be very polarized mm. um, opinions sometimes, but it's worth having those conversations. And my, my, I'm quoting my dad again, but he's got this really interesting analogy about, I asked my dad, I say to him, that how has he been able to change with the times? He grew up here in the UK in the 70s, he's, he's seen what life was like in the 80s, the 90s, and now the 2000s, and now a new decade. How has he been able to, to grow as well? And here's this analogy of a, of a tree. He says that it's important that each of us has our roots, um, our key values and principles, and that's what you're brought up with and, and what you grow up having. And then just like a tree, for, in order to stand, you will have to sway with the wind. New ideas will come along, new perspectives will come along, stuff that you used to think is really wrong will, will start to, to become right and, and things will change and you will just have to sway and learn with those things. If you don't and you become too stringent of staying where you are, tree will fall down, it will get ripped apart. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting analogy as, as we mm. as individuals, no matter what point you are in your life, you need to be understanding different perspectives. You may not always agree with them, but you need to be empathetic and you need to understand. It's been an absolute pleasure having Thank you here. You. Thank, Thank you, you for so me. much, Jasper <laughs> It's been wonderful. And here is Jaspreet Kaur reciting one of her favourite poems that she's written called I Am. I am raising my voice so the forgotten voices can be heard and I am 
holding my fist in the air for the independent women that are given the B word, and I am clearing up the blurred lines, because in these confines I still stand here with a strong spine, because what is mine is mine, and a no means no, and a yes means yes, and yes. I am her stories that have been forgotten from the histories, these historical women treated as if they were mysteries. His story. You're feeding us a false etymology. I am more than every single one of my responses being an apology. I am every lioness ripping through the stereotypes attached to our gender. I am the feminist agenda. The so-called burns, bras, the lack of female main role movie stars, all the girls in my gender studies seminars. I'm the women chained to railings to get our vote. I am every hunger strike guard in their throats. I am Miss McCarthy teaching me I can achieve anything. I'm the female warriors, my buggle, Bodicea that could defeat any king. I am my trainers who said I got a mean left hook. And I'm all the women forgotten from my school textbooks. I am feminism's waves one, two and three. I'm the women forgotten from science and technology. I am the men that see that their engagement is vital. I'm the women who refuse to stick to one label or one title. I am you. I'm him. I'm her. I'm genderless. I am the women who have to try harder at work to impress. I am the government's gender ratios that remained flawed. I am the women who have smashed through glass ceilings and have soared. I am the 10 to 20% less pay. I am all of the Beauvoir's essays. I am my father who said I am the same as my brothers. I am my ancestors, my sister. I am my mother. I am every woman that is making noise with what they write. I am the ongoing, silent power struggle. The ongoing fight. That was amazing listening to Jasper Kurda, was wasn't very, it? Very good. Reading her poem written especially for International Women's Day, and the poem is called I Am. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio.